Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. 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 Yay! Yeah. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. You're employed at Covenant Eyes, right? I've been employed at Covenant Eyes for 16 years. We're actually wow. by our employees. Covenant Eyes is owned by its employees. Okay, cool. 16 years. So you've seen Covenant Eyes change then quite a bit. Dramatically, yes. Uh, technology changes so fast. And six, so 16 years ago, basically, two, so 2007, when you started there, um, that's also when the iPhone came out. Is that right? Late that year. So when I started, there was no iPhone hmm. yet. Well, and I, I mean, my personal relationship with Covenant Eyes, I'm a Covenant Eyes user and have been for over a decade. I don't know how exactly how long, but I've experienced it going from the uh, basically tracking URLs, keeping track of URLs or keywords or whatever, and getting reports that way to now, of course, the screen monitoring, which is, I think, a really good deal. I, I think it's uh, amazing that <laughs> Covenant Eyes was able to develop that technology. Um, but you want to just give an overview of what that is for people who might not be initiated with Covenant Eyes? Yeah. So, uh, Covenant Eyes, uh, the whole purpose behind it is to bridge that gap between technology and us as individuals and to be in lockstep together, mm. Christ, right? We want to be together. The opposite of addiction and compulsive behaviors and, and that temptation is community that God called us to be in community together. Yeah. So that's the whole purpose behind it in the first place. So right before you, whatever you websites you visited, that's what Covenant Eyes would monitor and send it in an email report. Today, it looks a lot different. Uh, we actually, we had a, a PhD mathematician with a specialty in artificial intelligence who is working for the NSA. And he came to Covenant Eyes because he said, you know, I think God can use me more at Covenant Eyes than at the NSA. That's how, isn't only God makes that kind of thing happen. And uh, so we began working on artificial intelligence that would screen read and it didn't matter where it was coming from, even if it's coming from something offline. In fact, if I put a, uh, a flash drive in the side of my computer, or I have a hidden stash. If it appears on the screen, hmm. it's captured and then sent on a feed that comes through this new app called Victory by Covenant Eyes. And so that's where my allies, and we call them allies because uh, an ally has your back. They know what your goals are. They are 
rooting for you. They want to see you succeed. So that's why we call them allies. Mm. And um, so they see that feed coming through this victory app by Covenant Eyes. Now, the only not that's not the only thing that happens in victory. Uh, victory also uh, provides more than 20 educational resources that help you understand how did I get here? Why do I seem to struggle so much with this? How can I begin taking a journey toward freedom? Unapologetically Christian and biblically based with a mind-body-spirit perspective of how do I begin taking steps and living in freedom and wholeness in Christ? Hmm. How many uh, users does Covenant Eyes have these days? Just trying to get a sense of how big it is. Uh, we've served about 2 million people over our time. We have about 500,000 uh, individual users of Covenant Eyes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, sadly, it's a need that isn't going away. I mean, I guess the goal would be <laughs> to, in one sense, kind of put yourself out of business, right? Like where everyone would have victory. Um, yeah, but that account, there's always going to be that need for accountability and uh, getting help for those people who are struggling. Indeed. And it would be, we can go do something else, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to continue this. I would, it would be wonderful that we would no longer see two thirds of men in the church or a third of women in the church saying they have an ongoing struggle with pornography. And what's startling about that statistic is there were people who didn't include themselves in that uh, because 16% said, uh, if a video contains sexual scenes and nudity and sexual acts being performed and there was no other storyline in the video, it still wasn't pornography. Hmm. So even our definition of pornography has become eroded over time. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about in our postmodern society, in our increasingly secular society, even how to define pornography. I've not really thought about that before. Is there a, is there a working definition that you like to use? <laughs> there is a, a definition that I use, and it's different from what you'll see in surveys and studies. Hmm. Because we, you know, we're, we look at statistics and we want to examine, you know, we're getting these surveys and results and there's university studies that have been done and there's a whole bunch of cool things about that. But uh, that's interesting, I should say, uh, that's revealing about our culture and about our, our the impact it's even having on the church. But my definition simply goes back to what Jesus said. And Jesus said, if you look on another with lust in your heart, if you're objectifying someone else for your sexual gratification, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so I have uh, been at events where it was questioned or they were or people would talk about their sexual struggles, whether it was looking at men's or women's underwear or other things. Uh, I can tell you that many men, older men, that JCPenney catalogs, et cetera, were their pornography. So could we look at that and say, look at the TV ads? That's not pornography, right? Mm. Because they show, you know, depends commercials and all kinds of stuff. Is that pornography? Hmm. Well, it can be for you. If that is causing you to lust in your heart, if that is causing um, you to objectify someone else, 
then yes, that is pornography to you. And so you need to seek support and help uh, through the body of Christ to address that issue in your life. Wow. Well, and, that, and that's what your book, of course, is about, The Healing Church. And you rattled off a few statistics there. I'd written down some references in the book to where some stats are. So I just want to share some. I'm a baseball fan, so I love stats. And it helps me to kind of picture yeah, you know what we're what we're dealing with. So, um, I'm just going to give a, a whole list of stats, and then uh, any other commentary you want to you want to make on those, just feel free to follow up with that. But of Christian men, 18 to 30, 77 percent said they watch porn at least monthly. So Christian men, 18 to 30, basically eight out of 10 are watching porn at least monthly, and within that group. Uh, over a third, 36%, so they watch it daily. Mm-hmm. Men of all ages and two-thirds, um, no, sorry, overall concerning men of all ages, two-thirds of Christian men watch porn at least monthly, and 37% say they seek porn several times a week. Among women, 18 to 30, so that's the that same age group I started off with, 34% said they watch porn at least monthly. Um, you say about half of kids are exposed to porn by a peer and 32% were exposed by someone older. Mm -hmm. Uh, so talking about children initially first exposed to porn, it's by a peer 32%, a third it's by someone older, which is very fascinating. And then one more group of statistics was, uh, this and this one I thought was really interesting because it had to do with basically our self analysis of if we are addicted or not. A Barna study in 2014 showed 21% of people who identified as a Christian worried they might be addicted to pornography. So about one out of every five worried that they might be. About 27% of born again Christian men wonder if they are addicted to porn, with 18% being sure they are addicted to porn and 9% being unsure if they are or not. And uh, for born-again Christian men of all ages, 14% say they watch porn daily, and 54% watch porn at least monthly. For born-again Christian men of all ages, according to a 2014 survey, over half say they watch porn at least monthly. So a lot of stats there that show there is a problem, but... Jeremy, what's the big deal with that? Oh, man. Well, it it is a big deal, isn't it? Um, Well... You know, there, it, here's the reason that's a big deal. Right? We, so we see those stats and we go, okay, so we got, we've got we got this struggle with pornography in the church. What's its real impact? And there were a number of Christian colleges and organizations that did surveys, but there's also been some secular studies done on this as well. What is the real impact on the church? Church people worry about, ministry leaders are worried about this impact of pornography on the church. So what's is there really an impact? Or are they just compartmentalizing this and it's going to the side? And what they found was a direct correlation between pornography use and scripture reading, prayer life, church attendance, um, whether uh, how you'll serve in your church, uh, lots of these kinds of things, right? In fact, the University of Oklahoma found a direct correlation between the amount of pornography used and whether you will serve in a volunteer role or committee in your church over the next six years. Hmm. So this is crippling within the church. One, this is a sin, a sin that I think is a specific issue 
and pernicious trap of Satan to draw people away from the church. A direct correlation in these studies found whether my closeness, how I feel in my closeness to God based on how the pornography I'm using. Now, what was interesting is as I wrote The Healing Church, what churches get wrong about pornography and how to fix it, I interviewed more than 70 pastors and ministry leaders. And what they, what I also found was that there was also this flipping, like a flipping of a coin between perfectionism and shame. And there would be failure of Christians in, in, in you know, falling to pornography and this intense, deep shame that they would feel about it, which might lead to a binge or other acting out with alcohol or drugs or whatever else is going on in their life, that they're they're trying to escape that that shame even more. And after wallowing in that shame for a while, they'll flip back toward perfectionism to be in serving their family more or their kids more or their community more or their church more. And so often there are people in leadership roles or in layperson roles in our local churches who are also struggling and desperately want to be free. But And they can practice that perfectionism for so long because they're depending on their willpower, which will fail, right? And so they keep it all secret and to themselves, and that can only last for so long, and they fall again and feel that shame, and it just becomes this revolving circuit of perfectionism and shame. And we could probably even say for someone who's maybe not in a leadership role or not not serving actively in a church, that it could affect that person's church attendance even, right? I mean, I, I think I've seen that where you've got people who are afraid to show up because they feel that shame, and then they somehow get out of that rut and they start doing the perfectionism thing again until they hit the wall of shame again. Then they disappear for a few weeks and then they're back again. That's right. Yes. And so certainly those studies that said uh, pornography is impacting your ch church attendance, that's just yeah. certainly a, a facet of that. Well, I've got several questions that have come to mind, but I think maybe the most important place to start here, even going back to your definition of pornography and how you view it. Um, and asking the question, what is the big deal? What is the what is the sin here? I mean, because some people will get really pragmatic, right? And say, well, at least I'm not catting around on my spouse or whatever. At least I'm not actually doing this with a person. It's keeping me from doing that. And I know you're saying it's keeping me from living a, a solid Christian life and having a good walk uh, in my Christian life. But at least, you know, it's keeping me from these other bigger sins. And so someone might try to argue pragmatically here. Wh why do you say it's still a big deal? And there's actually um, something sinful going on in the viewing of pornography. Well, there's no really compromise between what Jesus says and what is sin and is not sin. So we can play these games with ourselves about, well, this sin would be worse, and I could do this and be bad. Mm -hmm. That could be more hurtful. But one thing you might consider if you're a husband and you're you're talking to, um, and I, I'm just using this. It could be a. a a wife or someone else. But next time you're going to go and use pornography, just walk into uh, the room and say, uh, honey, I want you to know that I'm going to go in the other room and watch pornography now. And I just want to let you know what I'm doing. Hmm. And so our, we would think, you know, that might be a little hurtful to her. Hmm. In fact, uh, we know from studies that many 
wives whose husbands have been using pornography on an ongoing basis, who are being unfaithful, not only pornography, even other, other things as well, that they experience deep trauma to the point of PTSD. So we need to be realist with ourselves and uncompromising in our faith and saying, are we going to follow Christ or are we going to make excuses why we can't live up to what Jesus lived in his life and what he has called us to live behind us? Now, what the real issue is, is why are you using pornography in the first place? Uh, why does it seem to have a, such a hold on you? And why do you, why is all these lies feel so real? And when we get to discover those issues, then we realize I don't need pornography. <laughs> I don't really need pornography anymore. Isn't that, and isn't that kind of freedom hmm. what we're looking yeah. for? And now listen, I dealt with a deep stronghold of pornography in my life. I, and when um, it was so impactful on my faith and I think in many ways that I became pretty much agnostic and left going to church and those things. And, and certainly there were other things at play in all this, right? But I think pornography had a significant, significant role in that. And so uh, when my wife began attending a small church after coming to Christ, not through me, but through my, my sister, my sister-in-law, she began attending a small church in our community where we still attend today. And she just asked if I'd come to a marriage class with her. And these people were a little peculiar and they were really sold out on their faith and what was what God wanted us for our lives and what not. But they would close the door and they would look and turn around and smile at the class and said, listen, this is a safe place. And what is said here stays here. And they were raw and honest about what they said to their wife or their husband and, and the things they were doing and thinking. And within that, when within that sphere, that's where I also learned pornography could be compulsive and addictive. And that was a great relief. That means I didn't have to stay this way. And so I think that's in that kind of atmosphere, I also discovered what are the triggers? What are the things pulling me to pornography? And that means I don't have to continue in this revolving issue of sin and shame and perfectionism and working harder. I can learn to live in greater wholeness and not just in regard to pornography, but in every part of my life where the closet can open, I can examine the contents in there with brothers in Christ. I can light up the corners of my life and I'm just not dealing with pornography now. I'm getting to deal, live, and again, in greater wholeness in Christ in every part of my life. And so often we get concentrated on that one issue, that one sin that's so overwhelming. And if we will actually do that in some ways, it can lead us through a safe place and a safe process. It can lead us to, oh my goodness, look at the things that I need to address in my my how I think, what I feel, what I believe. And that leads to greater wholeness so that I can be a, a, a more godly man, that I can be a better husband, that I can be a better servant to my local church. Yeah, well, it, it does start with that view of no compromise and 
not playing games. I mean, what you said there is just so true. We play games with ourselves to try to justify things. And we have to start with an honest perspective of this is wrong. We cannot seek to justify something that Jesus doesn't justify, that Jesus squarely addresses. We have to agree with Jesus that this is something that is wrong and we we have to face it. And as you're talking about those those triggers that push men or women into this, uh, one of the things you talk about several times in the book through the examples that you give, the stories that you give of people, is the way that pornography can just be an escape for people from whatever they don't like in the real world. Pornography then becomes a fantasy world where they can escape. You want to talk through what's going on in a person's mind when that happens, because I think that is... Uh, happening more often than people realize is that it's just an escape. It's like a drug essentially. Yeah. And I think it's, it's valuable to even broaden out a little further than that. Uh, we often like to picture a, a, a adult man or a woman, and suddenly they're just had this pop up on their screen and now they're confronted with pornography and they may make a good choice or a bad choice. Right. And if we dig a little deeper, we'll find that there's much more going on than, than this. Uh, there are three common factors uh, for those who struggle with pornography. One is the early exposure, typically as a child, often before they even understand the basic mechanics of sex. Number two is the ongoing use and repetition, often through adolescence. And number three is some, some trauma that's happened typically early in life, but have, can happen elsewhere as well. Hmm. And uh, my story uh, I, is just an illustration it's and it's so common that every time I do a newcomer meeting for an organization that uh, I serve in called Samson Society, uh, I do a newcomer meeting and new guys are coming in and I'll share my story first and they'll tell nearly the identical story over and over and mm -hmm. over again. The details are different, but all all the similarities are are there. I was 10 years old when I was first exposed to pornography. I remember coming out of my home in Florida and my brother was leaning against his car with his friend and they were looking at a magazine sideways and that just didn't make any sense. How can you read sideways? And I said, hey, what are you guys looking at? And they turned it around. And you see, I just told you a whole story about my first exposure to pornography, yet I can't tell you anything else about what happened that day. Mm. That's how impactful that that early exposure can be on a child. Now, listen, yes. I'm not exposed to nudity in a still photo format. And today, since 2007, we have been carrying around in our pockets the largest library of pornography ever created in the history of mankind. And, and we're handing it also to our children to put it in their pockets, right? And so... Uh, dopamine is one of those things that even though before a child can understand what's going on, dopamine is firing off. Uh, children are naturally curious about what the opposite sex look like without clothes. And dopamine can focus that attention when those sexual cues are picked up, even though they don't recognize, why am I feeling this way? I don't even understand what sex is. And they see not just the curiosity where children might show each other's, uh, their body, their bodies, uh, and that's where curiosity often ends. But now they're seeing adult bodies doing demeaning, uh, degrading, violent pornography, right? And so dopamine fires off, focuses that to attention to the point of tunnel vision where in God's design in marriage, that's beautiful. The rest of the world disappears and you're focused on your spouse. But so pornography is not 
uh, sex. It's a hijacking of what God created. And so we think, you know, we think about, oh, well, that's demeaning and violent. And so that must be pretty shocking for a child too. Well, norepinephrine is associated with fight or flight and it, along with dopamine, helps burn those memories into your brain, mm -hmm. those emotional experiences. You can probably remember many emotional experiences you've had in your life, even though you can't remember anything else about that day. So that's, that's that at work. And we don't need to shy away from how God designed our neurology. It's all his idea. Yeah. It uh, works for good too, right? Not just bad. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that's where the renewing of the mind comes in, where we focus on his word, on his teachings and we practice that as James would teach us and the more we do that the more we actually create neural pathways in our brain that no longer crave pornography they crave what is good and not what is evil so that that repetition uh I had a friend that he had pornography that and his dad had pornography that was falling out of his closet I could take anything I wanted and I did in the bad part of that neurology takes place where it is burning those neural pathways in the brain, those crave it more and more with the continued use and repetition of pornography. And finally, that trauma aspect is sort of all the cement that even glues it all the more. And that happens when uh, I didn't realize it, but I would run to pornography when I felt fear and anger and frustration, because even though I grew up in a Christian home, it was a hypocritically violent home. Um, and so pornography became this soothing salve, this secret place where I could go and escape. And then in my, in, but I also went to church. So I knew what I was doing was wrong. And so I'd throw away my pornography and I'd try harder. And that would just became a revolving thing of collecting new, throwing it away, collecting more, throwing it away. And so pornography would follow me again from middle school to high school to college and into my marriage. But thank God for a safe church where I began to take a journey with other Christian men. One of the things that you say in the book is that people seeking escape without help run around inside their prison cells, chasing their own tails. And that's a pretty vivid illustration of what's, what's going on. Um, before we get into uh, more of how the church can help, because that's obviously the main theme of the book, since we were talking about the exposure that children have to pornography, especially today and how easy it is to access anything they want, literally anything they want. On the preventative side, for parents raising children, um, what's what's your rule of thumb? Whenever people, I'm, I'm sure the people in your life who know what you do and know you've written this book, they come up, you get asked all the time as far as, what should I do to protect my kids from this? So before they get to the place where they need healing in the church, how can right. I prevent this from happening? What's your, what's your answer for people like that? Believe it or not, we need to talk about the things like pornography with our kids. And you're like, wait, 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 wait Sam, we're going to do what? And we can do this well. We can have age-appropriate conversations with our kids to teach, train, and disciple them, not for if they'll be exposed to pornography, but when. Uh, but parents are very leery of doing this. And I found there are five common myths that parents believe. And number one is my kid is a good kid. They would never... <laughs> be curious. They would never, yeah, they'd never be curious. Like mm -hmm. I was curious, right? 
And number two, I, if my kids saw it, they would just look away because, um, you know, they're just good kids, right? We go to church, they, they'll just turn away uh, or they'll let me know. And we've missed all that. How We just told you how impactful pornography is on that young brain, including what we didn't talk about was mirror neurons, which help children learn faster than adults. Uh, mirror neurons are like when you see something happening, it feels like you're doing it and it allows you to learn faster. Now, children have many more mirror neurons than adults. Mm-hmm. Number three, the measures I have in place are good enough. And what that typically means is I look over my kid's shoulder now and again. Yet they're carrying around this device all the time and we mow the lawn and do the dishes, et cetera. And we can't be with our kids all the time. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard about children being exposed, even a child who didn't have a device, who's being exposed to pornography by other children. Uh, It's a sad and secretive club that just continues on and on where children are being exposed to it. They didn't even maybe fully understand or know what's going on, but now they're sharing it with others. Or based on those first two reasons that my child is good or my child has like some force field around him that will make him deflect anything. That third uh, excuse is, you know, my, my, uh, oh, the defenses I have in place are good enough. I wonder how often that is, well, I ask, what, what did you look at on your phone or what, what, what were you looking at or who'd you talk to? What did he say? And they just assume that they're going to get the full and honest, transparent truth because they assume that their good kid would never do such a thing. Um, I wonder how naive parents are when it comes to those checks and balances that they think they have set up. It is, it, it of course, varies from parent to parent, right? Uh, I've heard parents going, yeah, I... For instance, I spoke uh, at a number of homeschool events in 2019. I know that's a few years ago. Um, but I began doing a poll of my those who are in my audience speaking or who come by the Covenant Eyes booth to ask some questions. And what I found was an extraordinary amount of parents knew that their kid, their child, had been exposed to pornography. Now, balance this with the fact that 71% of kids say they hide online what they do for hide online from their parents what they're doing online right yeah so of these 40 percent who knew their children had been exposed to pornography two percent were ages two to four two to four uh more than 21 percent of kids were ages five to eight Hmm. 37.3 percent of kids were nine to 12 and 31 percent so two-thirds of kids were under the age were 12 or younger wow and seeing pornography in this more isolated uh, group of Christian homes that were doing all they could to so that their child wasn't on that that uh, school playground on a daily basis or riding the school bus or all the other places where they fear that these inappropriate kind of interactions can happen, right? And yet it was still happening in these homes. What I found from a number of parents was they would say, this happened in my living room, in my kitchen, in my car, on my watch. Uh, I remember talking to a mom, and this is a repetitive story. I've heard this many times that she and her grand, uh, her mother, the kid's grandparents were on a trip to a park 
And her son asked if she could use her phone to look at the park that they're going to. And they, she handed the phone over the, the, the seat and they were looking at the park. And then the, the cousin who was sitting next to him says, hey, I dare you to look this up, this word up. And that was his first exposure to pornography. Mm. Kept wow. watching. Only by accident did they discover what happened. Uh, number four, boys are the only ones who struggle. We don't need to worry about our girls. We know about a third of women in the church say they struggle with pornography. Yet that is a study from 2016. Varna's working on another study, I believe, now. But 2016, a third of women. Hmm. And we, we've been handing our devices and they become more and more prolific in our culture. And so our children, our girls are being exposed at younger and younger ages. I remember having a 15 year old girl come up to our covenant eyes booth. And she said, I brought my mom and dad here to sign up for covenant eyes because when I was eight years old, I heard some boys say some words that I didn't understand. And so, um, I, I would ask my, I asked my dad, can I use your phone? And he handed me his device knowing of my innocence. And I looked up those words and that was the first time that I was exposed to pornography. And I would continually ask my mom and dad for their device. Over the next two and a half years, I would hide what I was doing because at eight, I was still smart enough to know how to hide what I was doing. And yet, so that went on for two and a half years, but before by accident, they found and discovered what I was doing and began providing me some help. An eight-year-old girl, right? So we I've heard this over and over and over again from young women who said, I was exposed at a very tender and young age. Number five, if I talk to my child about pornography, I'll just make them curious about it and they'll go look for it, right? So we can handle this conversation well, we can do it well, and... There's a plenty of great resources that are available. Let me give you just one. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna step right over here, grab a yeah. book, and I'll be right back. Must be a long headphones cord there. <laughs> oh, there the bookcase wasn't too far away. It was just there. Listen, I've, for, before I, I show you this book, I've got to I've got to at least tell you a story. So I was been speaking at an event the year before to parents, and the following year, this mom comes running up to my table and she says, "Sam," and I can hear her just coming, and she says. I just had to let you know my seven-year-old was exposed to pornography and she was excited. <laughs> I was like, well, what's going on? And she goes, no, 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 you don't understand. You see, we did exactly what you said. We began having these ongoing conversations. We put software in place to begin protecting our devices and reporting what they're looking at so we can turn that into conversations. And we used this good pictures, bad pictures book that you told us about. And my seven-year-old was just at my neighbor's house and their seven-year-old has just received an iPad for his birthday. And he takes the other neighbors, uh, takes this cell phone or this iPad, and he puts it into his, uh, his face. And the seven-year-old who's been trained says, no, that's pornography. And he turns and he runs home 
tells us mom and dad what's been going on. Amen. Now, that's what we want. They yeah. congratulate them or him. And they're excited for him and say, oh, thank you. But they let the other parents know what happened, what went on. And with a little deeper discovery, they find out that their seven-year-old son has exposed kids throughout the neighborhood, 9, 10, 11 years old, 7 years old, to pornography. And the only child who said anything was the child who had been trained. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, one of the tools in the training. And you can have many more. But it's called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures Junior. And this is for uh, three to six-year-olds, even seven-year-olds if you choose. And it's a picture book. It's a read-along book, right? It's very easy to follow. And it helps them understand that we have good pictures of our of our family and of our pets. And um, when we go to the, on vacation, we take pictures there and we go to the beach and we wear our mm. bathing suits, right? So it lets a child know where their bathing suit area is and uh, why that's private. And if they see an image without without the bathing suit area covered, well, that's pornography, and they need to turn, run, and tell. Turn, mm -hmm. run, and tell. And that gets repeti repetitive. And so we are teaching a young brain that has a very underdeveloped prefrontal cortex, a decision-making part of the brain of what to do when they see yeah. pornography, right? Yet that young brain has a very deep feeling brain, a more well-developed feeling part of the brain. And so that's why we can see kids be very emotional, et cetera. So we have to work harder to help them use that limited prefrontal cortex to know what to do when they see pornography. There is a second uh, version of this book. It's for kids uh, 7 to 12, and it's called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. It's the original version of it. It helps them understand their feeling brain and their thinking brain and how they can use it to say and turn away from pornography, what their next steps will be. So we don't leave it the chance. We begin having an ongoing conversation to teach, train, and disciple our kids. So we start young. They need to know the proper names for their body parts. Uh, God's not ashamed of their body and neither should they be. And we can have uh, a winsome conversation because what I've often found is that parents wait till they think their kids are old enough, which is typically in their teen years. And by then they've either been exposed to pornography. They've heard their kid, their friends mm -hmm. talking about pornography. They've had all these private conversations that mom and don't know, know about. Meanwhile, the kid just gets embarrassed because now they're having a, a conversation they've never really had with mom and dad before. So they get embarrassed. Then the parent gets embarrassed and everything comes to a mm -hmm. screeching halt. So yeah. we start early, we start young, and we make it comfortable for them to come to us with anything. We have to be safe. So the conversation, of course, is really important. But you also mentioned briefly there, um, if they have a device, having protect in, protection with software on the device, um, do you even get into the conversation of should kids have a phone or not? Uh, or do you just say if they do, you have to have some software on there? How, how do you feel about that? Kids should not have a mobile device until at least eighth grade. Hmm. Uh, they should not have at least a smart device. Yeah. If it's a dumb phone, because you need to be able to, to reach them, okay. But you still need to be able to find some way, uh, do something that you can monitor what's the texts that are coming in and out, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. But, it's, it's a complicated world with so many different options that it seems like 
I mean, you just spent a lot of time talking about the conversation, which is absolutely critical. Because if we just do the preventative stuff, we're just addressing the fruit, never getting to the root. Um, you know, trying to address the root is so important, but we also have to have those safe measures in place for the, <laughs> for the other stuff too, don't we? That's right. So we, it's important that we protect all the devices in our home. We're not leaving anything to chance. And certainly there are different software for different ages. We recommend Covenant Eyes specifically for teenagers and adults. Yeah. There are some other tools such as maybe Bark that's better for young children. But for yeah. teenagers and adults, Covenant Eyes, the whole idea behind that is you're building this on, we want to have an ongoing conversation we don't want to make what's on our devices private. We want to be open uh, to what's going on. And as someone who has, again, used Covenant Eyes for over a decade, I heartily endorse Covenant Eyes. I've never had a problem with it. I know some people get freaked out about if I put something on my phone like that, my phone won't work right or whatever. That's never been an issue with me. It's only been good and helpful. And especially pastors listening, got to have something like that just for the sake of accountability. Uh, there's no no excuse. We're the only ones in our industry that provide free member care with a live person. So you can wow. call, chat, or email to whatever help you need, whether it is, hey, I need some resources to better understand this, or, you know, I'm not very adept at software. Can you help me load it on my device? Mm -hmm. Can you show me how to do that? We'll actually walk you through that. Amen. Good deal. And, and well, Covenant Eyes is, again, owned by its employees. So when you talk to a member care agent, hmm. you're actually... I, you're actually talking to an owner of the company. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, let's um, well, let's get into. I, we, we've been talking about it, but let's get more focused on the healing church, the yes. theme of your book. And I just want to start with this: Why does the church seem to have such a hard time addressing this issue in the way that they should? How, why does the church so often, the local church, fail in getting people to open up? to get accountability, to really get to the heart of these issues where it just seems like that elephant in the room for many churches. What what is How would you summarize what the problem is there? I don't think I can summarize it in one sentence because, or even a paragraph because there's many facets to why this can be so difficult. Uh, one, we're not very good often at being vulnerable with one another. One of the foundational principles of the Christian faith is James 5.16, to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. And I'll visit small churches and they will say, well, you know, we really know each other here. And it's very hard to be that kind of transparent and vulnerable with someone else, especially about a, a secret sin like pornography, especially if it's a stronghold in my life. And I'll go to a large church and they'll say, well, I don't know someone close enough yeah. or well enough that I can really ask them to be and be that vulnerable with someone that I don't know and trust that. So much. what's the answer? It seems like you're okay, so it's not the size of the church. That's the problem, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, we really need to ask ourselves, what part of James 516 do we not believe? Mm. Right. Well, what, what, what am I afraid of holding back? Is, is, am I afraid that Christ's grace is not available in other from other people in my community. We want the best for each other, right? And so often we're we we have seen condemnation happen. And I was just talking uh, earlier this week with another podcaster who who said that uh, he was asked to leave his church 
uh, not just stepped down from some work that he was doing in the church, but he said, hey, I, I went to my church body, told them what was going on. Not only did they say, you need to step down from any of your activities, you need to leave our church. Hmm. That's that's not God's grace there, right? And so wow. when we have seen that kind of thing, it has made us very fearful of coming forward. We've heard seen a little bit too much gossip and discussions and etc. So we need to learn to be a more safe people that really and truly believe in God's grace and his redeeming power in our lives. Uh, number two, we've not made it very easy for our pastors and ministry leaders often to talk about these kinds of issues. Uh, I can remember talking to a pastor who said, Sam, you, you want me to talk about pornography from the pulpit or my men's group or in front of women's group, et cetera. But you have to understand, I was reading from scripture and I am teaching on Rahab, and in Scripture is the word prostitute, and I say that word as I'm reading Scripture, and after church, boy, did I get an earful about how I can't use those kinds of words in church. I'm thankful I don't have a church like that, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm glad you don't either. <laughs> And he says, well, what should I have done? And I said, well, the first thing you should do is tell them to grow up, right? Yeah, that's this right is our world. And so we have to, if we are going to be the church in this current environment that we live in, knowing the, the attacks that are coming against our children, our teens, and our adults, then we need to be able to step up and be able to have these conversations and let our pastors and ministry leaders talk about these issues without giving them a hard time and difficulty, right? Yeah. I think also, though, we often want simple answers to very difficult solutions. So we just talked about the early exposure, the ongoing repetition and use, the hiding of that, uh, that, how you're using it as escapism. And it just becomes so intertwined in how you, in your mind, body, and spirit have been corrupted. Mm -hmm. It changes literally how you think. And you really want to escape. Uh, there are so many Christian men and women who said, I promised myself, I promised God, I've promised others, I would never go back to this and here I am again. I hate this about my life. I really wish I could live in freedom. So what would be wrong with having a safe place with a safe process where we are able to dive into deep discipleship with others and help guide them on a path toward living in Christ's freedom? And regardless of what your denomination is or your theology, you can do that within your community. And it is imperative. And here's the cool thing. You know, we talked about earlier about how pornography is undermining every ministry in the local church, from children's ministries to teen ministries, adult and marriage ministries, how it is reducing uh, church attendance and prayer life and scripture reading and volunteerism in the church, etc., as I visited churches across the United States and interviewed more than 70 pastors and ministry leaders, what I found over and over again, that those who'd gone through a safe place and a safe process came out on the other side saying, pastor, I can help with that. I'm willing to do that. Having had a spiritual awakening, they want to give back. Yeah. They Their scripture life has grown tremendously. Their prayer life has grown exponentially. Uh, they are steady attenders of not only their meetings, but also their uh, regular church services. 
And instead of saying, uh, backing off of being in a volunteer role, pastors in those churches were saying, listen, Sam, you have to understand that I do less now. I don't do more. Because when we, as we've discipled people who were caught in their strongholds and not caught, trapped in their strongholds, and we've walked them toward freedom through a safe process. They have said, hey, pastor, I'll do that work. I'll take on that task. You don't need someone to disciple that person. I can do that. And so we have a more vibrant, strong, and strengthened church where I have don't have to do all these tasks that I never had time for. So uh, there is value in doing this work, not just, oh man, it looks like a heavy lift. Can I really do that? Yeah. Well, I um, one of the, the books, the leadership books that I really enjoy is a book called Crucial Conversations. It's pretty popular. And um, it talks about when you have a, a crucial conversation with somebody, the importance of creating or helping the person feel like there's safety. So a person can open up and you can talk about serious things. And as I'm thinking about how um, church leaders, perhaps listening to this would go about creating an atmosphere of safety and trust uh, on this particular issue so that people can come to them and open up and we can get the issues out in the open. Like you talked about before the closet being open and going through the issues. Uh, There are different routes that they could take, whether that's a, a group discipleship type class that walks through this issue or whether it's one-on-one. I, I know there's even uh, groups out there like AA. There's also SA, of course, for sex addicts, uh, anonymous to go through those issues. They may even think of like having something like that in their church that would ha- host meetings. There are so many different routes people could go as they're thinking about how to start addressing this issue in the local church. And I know that every church will be different, but what kind of rules of thumb do you have for here's how you can think about creating the environment to get this issue out in the open and address in a good and godly way? Right. Uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Thank goodness. There's a lot of resources and programs, et cetera, that are available. And I broke these down within the healing church. Um, between the easy lift, small lift, medium lift, and large lift, right? So you can do something now. Often, uh, we want the perfect solution, but often what we need is the first step. We need to do something. And what often uh, we look for, how that's the perfect thing I can do right now, uh, often leads to, well, I need to think more deeply and how am I going to make this the most grand thing ever? And what you need is take that first small step forward. And so maybe your church isn't uh, that far down the road. In fact, you're just thinking about, well, how do I even address this topic if someone comes to me about it? All right. So now you've got an easy lift situation. Uh, We talked about the Victory app by Covenant Eyes. It's a free app. So (laughs) easy, right? It's a free app. There's more than 20 resources in there that help. Uh, coming on 30 resources, all about how did I get here? Why do I seem to stay here? What is God's truth about the issue? And how can I really grow in Christ? And we walk through how an ally can walk along with them. I mean, it's all right there. It's easy. Uh, We provide lots of those kind of resources at covenantize.com as well. So easy, right? Uh, But 
you can take you, there's studies for this and workbooks and Covenant Eyes provides one called Life Change. And you can download that from our website as well. It, these are just, and we have a video series that's, the video is all free within the Victory app you, where you can screencast it to any smart TV, et cetera. Uh, there's organizations like Pure Desire and Be Broken and et cetera that can really help. And so, so many amazing tools out there where you can have a program in your church. So wherever you're at, take that first step. Now, one of the easy things I, I'll hustle throw to pastors and ministry leaders here is that knowledge precedes understanding and understanding precedes change. And that 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 knowledge and understanding also creates empathy. And that's why I wrote The Healing Church in the first place, is I wanted an empathetic primer for pastors and ministry leaders so they can understand why would anybody go here? Why would this be a stronghold in someone's life? Why can't they just shake it off? Uh, why do they seem to keep coming back? What can I do in my local church that can really help that? How can I change, begin changing the culture within my church where we love you too much to leave you stuck? So you can download the first chapter, by the way, at thehealingchurch.com for free. And I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll do a little, we'll do a little special here. I will leave a QR code for you. And if your listeners would like to get a copy for a limited time, I'll mail it to you for free. You don't even have to pay the postage. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to mail it to you for free. And so we want to equip the church to be able to address a difficult topic like pornography and equip you to do that better. Right before we finish here, I, I want to ask this too. I know, um, of course, healing is a two-way street. It's not just about providing help. It's about the person also wanting to be helped. Mm. So what advice, counsel do you give generally to someone who is uh, addicted, truly addicted to pornography? I mean, if we just extrapolate the the stats out, a large chunk of this audience is addicted to pornography. So what do you say to them about finding help and receiving help in their local church? So there's, there's a couple of questions wrapped in there. My first is if you are struggling with pornography and you want to be free, freedom is a real thing. I can tell you that I felt overwhelmed by the desire for pornography and and living, learning, and growing in Christ's freedom isn't just sort of this possibility. It's a real thing. To where pornography, to me, doesn't hold any value anymore. It's like, oh, I just, why would I, why go there? It's never going to be worth it. It's never going to be satisfying. It's never going to give me anything except more pain. It's just not attractive. And you're like, what, Sam? How is that possible? When scripture talks about the renewing of the mind and renewing of the heart, that's a real thing. And we should take that scripture at face value. That, so I want to encourage you, don't wait. Take that step today because right now you're probably thinking, well, you know, I've either I've just struggled, I struggled last night or whatever it was, I fell to pornography again. Don't wait to run to the cross. 
don't wait to run to Jesus' feet. He has paid the price for your sin. You, He wants you to live in his freedom. Amen. Don't pause. Go ask for that forgiveness today and don't stop there. Start on a path that really leads you to better understand why does pornography have such a hold on my mind, body, and spirit? And how can I take a real and honest journey to living in freedom? Now, God can do anything. He restores people of their addictions instantly, but often he calls us on a journey of childlike faith with others, no longer living in secrecy, but living with the body of Christ, drawing on the body of Christ to live in real freedom. But you need some answers. So I'd encourage you, download that Victory app by Covenant Eyes. You're going to find some answers there to help. If you're looking at this and going, I don't want any help. You're never going to find freedom until you say, I'm willing to ask for help. You're, you're going to find that if you're just going to try to self-regulate this issue, it's going to get worse. It's said that pornography will take you places you never thought you'd go, do things you never thought you'd do, hurt people you never thought you'd hurt, pay a price that you never thought you'd pay. And so I encourage you, don't let the lies that seem rooted in the very way you feel, and you can learn more about why we have these feelings in the healing church. Don't let that get in your way. Take a real honest look and say, do I want to follow Christ? And if you want to follow Christ, don't pause another moment. Be willing to learn and grow and understand why you're there in the first place and how you can live in freedom. Yeah, it's so good. That willingness is is so key. You got to be willing to be open to no longer live in secrecy, just like you said. Um, and freedom is there. Freedom is real. Good stuff, Sam. Appreciate you coming on today and and sharing. And thank you so much for your generous offer. We'll obviously make sure we get that into the the show notes and have the QR code up on YouTube and have That's that link provided. Up at the time, so we can't have that up there forever. So don't yep. pause. Don't wait. Go hit that QR code as soon as you can. Okay. Good deal. Thanks so much, Sam.